I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is Play Me, Canada's national digital theatre. Each week, we take some of the hottest plays and transform them into contemporary audio dramas. I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. This week on Play Me, we have something a little bit different. Um, we have an interview with dramaturg Erica Copito. For all of those writers out there that are struggling with starting a script or finishing one, we thought it would be interesting to um, to talk to a dramaturg and get some writing tips and insight from an expert. Uh, Laura and I have actually worked with Erica on a couple of occasions. She has this amazing ability to be able to take a, a scene that's not working and dissect it and then guide the writer to find a solution and to find a way to make that scene work by themselves. She's also a lovely person and a lot of fun and is really great at making a writer realize that, you know, what a problem that they're encountering is not insurmountable and that she gives some great tips and tools to to fix any dilemma you've written yourself into. Yeah, so Erica talks about some resources. She talks about mistakes that young writers make and also um, talk about how to really take your writing to the next level. Uh, I think it's a great conversation for anybody who is a writer or wants to be a writer or even if you're just interested in knowing how does a story work. You'll notice in this interview that there is a fair amount of background noise, which we could not help. There was a hailstorm happening during the interview. We'll jump into the interview with Erica in just a second. But before we go away, we want to make sure that you tune in next week as well for the first episode of Nicholas Beyond's Iceland. Here is Chris's interview with Erica Kopito. So first of all, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, we'd love to talk to you a little bit about story, talk to you a little bit about life as a dramaturge. Um, but I guess first of all, I guess the question you probably get asked an awful lot is, what is a dramaturge? Oh, gosh. Entire conferences were built around this question, and there's really um, no easy answer. Um, so pretty much when we talk about uh, the role of a dramaturg in Canada, almost always it refers to new play development. So a dramaturg might be a person attached to a theatre company, um, might engage in sometimes what's called literary management, um, might be a person who is affiliated with a specific play or a specific piece. Um, But I think the more interesting aspect of dramaturgy is not so much the noun, but the verb. So what is dramaturgy? Um, still a complicated answer. Um, but the process by which um, storytelling maybe meets with, maybe the maybe one way to think about it is the process by which the story convenes with the audience. 
Wow. So how, how did you, uh, I'm sure you didn't, you weren't 12 and you went, well, I want to be a dramaturge when I grow up. How did you get to this? What I, was the route? I only ever wanted to be a dramaturg my whole life. <laughs> um, so I didn't hear the term dramaturgy uh, probably until I was in an undergrad theater course at UBC in the late 90s. And even then, um, you know, it was a very, it, it was a word that was just being introduced, I think, mostly into the lexicon of sort of Canadian theater making in any general way. Um, certainly there were no, you know, established graduate studies or um, books about dramaturgs and dramaturgy. Professional associations were not yet formed around these things um, or, you know, early sort of maybe some of them were in their early heyday, but it, it certainly wasn't as developed. Um, but uh, after taking graduate studies in drama at U of T at the Drama Center um, is when I really um, was exposed to dramaturgy in a more profound way. So um, did a course on dramaturgy, which was a prerequisite to go on to a PhD, and I thought I was going to stay in academia for a while, so I did that. And then um, I was placed um, uh, in a co-op with Nightwood Theatre as a um, intern dramaturg. And it was really then that I... Um, started developing my skills and understanding the role. And um, it was also around then that the career, or dramaturgy as a career, um, started becoming more established in Canadian theatre-making circles. And again, you know, dramaturgy is something that is done with or without a dramaturg present um, in new play development. Um, So the process of dramaturgy, whether we call it that or not, or understand it that way or not, is something that just occurs and we could talk about that in a little bit but um you know as a as a tangible profession it was it was something that i um was sort of exposed to through through academic channels uh you've worked with lauren myself and i remember yeah. it was the first time that i really had somebody sit down and take us through a script can you just describe what you actually do with a writer when you sit there as you yeah. go through the script yeah, so in terms of my own process and, you know, um, huge disclaimer, this is me and my process and everyone works differently the same way. You know, when you ask writers how they write, they're going to have a hundred different answers. And if you ask actors how they adhere to a role, they're going to have a hundred different answers. So um, for me, a major part of beginning my work is sort of diagnosing, um, which makes it sound so much more important because I bore that term medically. Um, and really, we are not saving lives here. We are just telling stories um but you know diagnosing what the needs and wants and desires of the artist is that's the first thing I mean what is the goal here um for some people it might be you know I just want to sort of explore and you know or I have something I really need to express you know for other people um it might be you know, towards a final draft of a play and they have a workshop coming and, you know, money and time and energy and other artists are involved. And so they need to get a draft ready to, you know, that's ready to be um, sort of mined and exposed and worked through. So diagnosing the goals and wants and desires of the artist um, and then the goals, desires and wants of the play of its uh, as its own entity. Um you know, is a really, really important thing. So any sort of paradigm that I would bring to, you know, a piece, and I do have lots of tools that I, you know, revert back to and a lot of sort of, you know, things that I do for most pieces that I that I jump into. But um, I think it's really important to try to 
keep a little bit of objectivity and really think about what the goals, needs, and desires are. Um, so when I first, to answer your question, so when I first maybe, you know, meet with somebody, um, actually often I like to meet with somebody even before reading a script. Sometimes people meet with me really early, like before there's anything written on paper. I don't know that that's the best time to engage with dramaturgy. Um, if you have something to say, or you're meant to have something to say, or you have a deadline that tells you you need to say something, you need to get something down on, you know, paper, or whatever form you're going to um, share this, you know, piece, because it's not always written, it's not always text-based. Um, but you need to get it something down before you want feedback from anybody. I mean, what's the point of me giving me feedback on an idea that's not yet realized? You know, and already there's so many layers about it being realized in other forms that I just might not understand. There's already so much muck that the best thing that somebody could do is is get as far as they can and then, you know, and then expo- and then when they're ready, when they're ready for feedback, when they're ready to get insight, when they're ready to have a conversation, that's the best time to bring me in. So I like to have um, a personal connection with the person or people that I'm working with. Um, as in your case, you know, it was more than one person. And I often work with teams or collaborations or, you know, groups of people or whatever. Not always individuals. Um, yeah, so starting with a conversation and then moving... Um, and then moving forth from there. So then it's just, you know, uh, it's, it, sometimes if it's text-based, it's maybe, I'm not sure I feel comfortable with this term, but essentially text analysis. I mean, I'm just going to read it and come up with questions, um, of things that I think might, you know, spark insight or ideas or, um, further questions for the, for the artist. Yeah, I felt a little like you were a writing therapist because you never uh, said don't do this or do this, but yeah. you sort of guided and allowed us to discover. Um, yeah, and that's sort of um, the methodology that I was sort of <laughs> raised on in you know it, it, sort of when I was learning about dramaturgy um, again, you know, about about fifteen twenty years ago. Now that was sort of the the favored methodology. There's a lot of people who are way more direct who will say cut this, who will who will say don't do this. I try to, um, you know, I, I will change my methodology depending on who the writers are and who the artists are. Some people just need blunt answers and really want to know your opinion and are able to navigate those answers. So my fear with telling somebody how to write their play is. Well, who am I to tell you, A, it's your piece. So I, part of it is just, I feel um, less convicted um, most of the time. So, you know, for me to be so, so specific, even though I might have a vision or even though I might have my own artistic wants, desires. And in fact, I do. I, I always have an agenda. Um, <laughs> but for me to tell you, like, it's your piece, you know, I'm, I'm just here to help guide it. Um, so, so that's one reason why I might, um, provoke questions. The other thing is, you know, if I tell you what to do with your piece and you write that, but it doesn't come from a place of internal curiosity or that same creative artistic place that the other things have come with, I don't think it ever, I don't think it, I think there's a way bigger chance that that portion of it or the piece in, 
in general can fail. Mm-hmm. You know, if I say, you know, you really need to kill Bill and act too. Like Bill is doing nothing. Like we all know Bill is doing nothing. And even if I'm 100% right, if Bill for you is like the quintessential cornerstone of the thing that you need to express and we've just killed him, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm going to, you know, you know, writers, right? They're going <laughs> to, sometimes people call them insecure. And so they might write, they might write Bill completely out of act two. And I just killed your piece. I just killed whatever thing you were going to express. Like, how does that help anybody, yeah. you know? So maybe you write this other play, um, but it's not about Bill anymore. And Bill is what kept you up at night, and Bill is what you wanted yeah. to say. So I don't want that responsibility. Yeah. Like, I'm a really good number two. I'm, you know, <laughs> like I, if I wanted to be number one, I'd write the play, you know? Until the show goes up and it gets a review, and it's like the headlines, they yeah. should have killed Bill. No, of course. And if it's, if it's good, I'm going to take all the credit. And if it's bad, I'm going <laughs> to... It's, it was all you, you know, I told you what to do already. So it's not my fault. Um, because you've probably read so many scripts, worked on so many scripts, I'd, you're going to have an insight that writers don't have. You're going to have an insight that um, uh, regular play uh, goers don't have. And I'd just love to find out when something's not working, mm-hmm. how do you approach a scene? If you, if you look at the scene, and you go, this is not working. What are the questions that you ask yourself? How do you examine it and try and find your way to a solution? So again, you know, it goes back to what I, without sounding too repetitive, it really, we're in a, you know, diagnostic realm here. So, you know, if the play's about to go up and, you know, we're working with a production draft and we're just delving into one scene, there's an entirely different set of questions that I might ask myself than if we're early on in the process and developing work. Or if, as you mentioned, you know, yes, I have read a lot of scripts through submissions, um, you know, in which case I probably wouldn't be looking at scenes. I'd be looking at sort of the whole, you know, how the whole piece works together. Um, But some of the things, some of the elements that um, I'm looking for, um, you know, are, are the things that, the things that, you know, you will learn in like best made playmaking courses or, you know, storytelling books, or, you know, there are a million websites and um, a million people writing about the art of storytelling and what would work. So, um, I'm looking at elements of storytelling, things like structure and character, I'm looking for conflict, I'm looking for rhythm, I'm looking for, um, you know, transformation, um, I'm looking for obstacles. And it's not, and again, this is really more script-based, not scene-based, but, um, you know, it's really rare that I am, look, you know, that I'm going to start reading a script and be like, okay, I'm looking for the climax. Where's the climax? So you know, you know if it's there, you know if it's not there, you feel it, you don't feel it. Sometimes if it's not there, you kind of spend a little bit of extra time being like, did I miss it? Is this what the artist intended to be the climax? And maybe it just needs to be punched up, in which case that's a purely, you know, that's a very clear dramatur- dramaturgical um, note, you know. Mm. Did you intend for this to be the climax? Because it's a little bit hidden right now. You know, can yeah. you punch it up? <laughs> what ways What ways can you help emphasize that? Um, you know, but that said, given all of these myriad, you know, forms of, um, you know, or elements of storytelling, I think it is really important for writers to... Um, sort of know what these things are and to learn um, their techniques and to learn, you know, structural approaches and to read about writing a little bit. Um, 
you know, you should know how to do your figures before you go into an abstract world. It's sort of, you know, mm. a, a visual artist sort of metaphor there, um, a visual arts metaphor. But um, at the same time, I think it kind of depends again, on where you're coming from and who you are. I know lots of writers who are super structural and who will, um, you know, start with a storyboard or who might even come from, you know, who might dabble in TV or might dabble in filmmaking in a way where, you know, writing is approached much more structurally than sometimes theater making historically. Um, And for those people, I would not encourage them to do those things. You know, I would encourage them to do more free writing. I would encourage them to, you know, take their characters, you know, out for dinner, which is a silly way for me to say, you know, just spend time with characters in your brain and imagine their world and imagine their inner selves and, you know, their deep psychological, whatever it is, you know. Um, Most playwrights that I work with don't approach playwriting structurally. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's a lot of people who conjure characters or people who work on their feet, people who never want to write something down text-based because coming from an acting perspective or from a extra textual perspective sure. or, yeah. you know, and in, in sometimes in those cases, you know, at a, at a certain point, should the play want it, um, you know, asking them to put a structural approach on it could be helpful. Can you, you talk know? a bit about structure? Can you talk maybe even say about the hero's journey? Or... Yeah, I could talk about the hero's yeah. journey. So, um, you know, if you're a writer and you don't know what the hero's journey is, you should know what the hero hero's journey is in that same way that you should understand, you know, sort of structural approaches to playwriting. There are definitely people who say that all stories need to follow a hero's journey. Um, I am not one of those people. So, um, you know, a hero's journey is a structural approach to storytelling that starts with, you know, an individual who is tasked with something and then they have to, um, you know, overcome a bunch of obstacles in order to achieve transformation at the end so you will look for all these you know they must slay the dragon and you have to look at what your dragon is in your script and you have to sort of you know figure out things in the structural way um a lot of great storytelling absolutely follows the hero's journey in you know a western anglo um you know sort of contemporary and pseudo-contemporary cultural paradigm millions of brilliant stories have not followed the hero's journey um or you know there's certainly feminist takes so you could have the heroine's journey or there's you know the hero's journey with double climaxes there's all sorts of variations <laughs> on the themes so i do think that you know if if those basic structural story components of the old masters which we all know are dead white men um if you don't know what those things are um yeah, you should learn them. Like brilliant stories have been based on on structural approaches to the hero's journey, and I think that there are real things about, um, you know, the hero's journey that um, is probably true for most plays that I'm attracted to. Mm-hmm. So this idea of transformation, this idea of a character overcoming obstacles, um, this idea of um, you know, really starting like you know, one thing that I'm almost always attracted to in a story is just, um, you know, the world is normal at the beginning. And this comes from Hero's Journey. The world is normal at the beginning and it is different at the end. Mm. 
mm-hmm. for, again, for a person or for, you know, the world of your play. And it's that sense of transformation that speaks to, you know, possibly our deeper psychological, you know, want for narrative and mm-hmm. for human connection and for transformation and all those things. So, you know, um, again, repeating myself, but I think know the structure and then feel free to depart from it right. if it tells the better story. There's the only rule, really, mm-hmm. the only rule is what tells the better story. And how can you tell that? How can you tell when the story is working? Yeah. So, I mean, one approach is to do a hyperstructural analysis and apply it to the hero's journey and see what element of storytelling is missing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you know, like, what are you going to get from that? You're going to get a formula or you're going to get something that like might or there's you know might or might not work um this is when we engage our artistic selves you know i'm giving you the softest answer here and this is something that (laughs) shifted for me because i think i would have had a much clearer answer five years ago but i'm like does it sound like a great story does it feel like a good story Mm -hmm. you know what's your instinct here what's what does your gut tell you what's your visceral reaction um you're gonna like stories i'm not gonna like i'm gonna like stories you're not gonna like stories are not you know the same stories are not gonna be for everybody so, you know, good is subjective. I'm sorry, it's such a, it sure, really yeah. comes so roundabout in my thinking around those things. But good is subjective. Mm-hmm. Of course it is. Yeah. Um, you know, and, you know, I think we are also, you know, our media literacy has shifted so much, even in the last five or 10 years as a, you know, society, as a mono society, you know, we are engaged so much more in nonfiction. Now, um, with the advent of social media, and, you know, the type of things that we see Mm -hmm. on TV, you know, um, when I was younger, I I felt way more engaged with fiction all the time, um, give or take a news program on television, right? And now it's cooking shows and, um, you know, reality TV shows or, you know, race around the world shows or, you know, and those are all stories. Those Mm -hmm. are all absolute stories, um, but they're not fiction, right? Right. So that that affects the way we understand people and the way we understand form and the things that appeal to us. Again, you know, um, you know, plays... It was nothing to ask your audience to sit for three hours. You know, when I went on Stratford school trips when I was younger, it was just what we did. And now, you know, in this, you know, for right, for wrong, for whatever, you know, we play with people's media literacy, you know. Lots of plays are one hour. Lots of plays are 90 minutes. Most plays don't have intermissions anymore. Mm -hmm. The ones that I'm seeing in Toronto, right? It amazed me when you introduced us to the hero's journey, how I could see the hero's journey in so many different places, not even in traditional stories or traditional mm-hmm. theater pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, we we'll actually put a link to a video, oh, um, the TED Talk video that good. lays out uh, the hero's journey. Uh, yeah. We'll do that on our website, which is playmepodcast.com. You mentioned, um, you mentioned obstacles. Mm-hmm. How, do you, how, do, how do obstacles work into a theater piece? So, I mean, I do think... Um, you know, I do think struggle and conflict, um, again, most of the time need to be a part of a a good story. Absolutely. Um, you know, the hero's journey will lay it out that these things sort of are incremental and that they're sort of, you know, um, happen, you know, you might have a, a mega obstacle that a character sort of you know, overcomes. Um, 
and I think that there are more contemporary ways of storytelling where sometimes those things are internalized and sometimes um, smaller obstacles are externalized. Um, you know, a crafty writer can certainly play with uh audience's expectations and what conflict really is right so you you know this idea that you know you're expecting one thing in terms of overcoming it um but really you know it's revealed at the end the characters internal demons all along were the thing to overcome wizard of oz is a perfect example of that right she wants to get back to kansas she wants to get back to kansas she wants to get back to kansas ah it was all within her the whole time right? right home is always where the heart is um so you know there are good reveals that way around around conflict. But I think that there is something about um, establishing the world of the play at the beginning. Um, you know, Greek dramatists always, you, know, you start with the action, you open it up, you're in the middle of a fight, you're in the middle of a battle. Um, we tend to see now, um, you know... Uh, most contempor- many contemporary plays, it's so hard to say most or make any sort of generalizations anymore because I think we are in such a postmodern sense, you know, experiencing storytelling from so many different realms and in a vibrant theater community um, like Toronto's, you know, you can engage in so many. So, but, but um, to say that, you know, establishing scenes, giving us a chance to sort of be in the world of your play, um, you know, I'm actually not a very efficient reader of plays and I would say that I'm not a very efficient um audience member and to explain that um you know I for for a long time I thought it was a deficit as a dramaturg you know it would just take me twice as long to sort of read a play and really understand it um but I actually think it's kind of good because I'm sort of lowest common denominator here which is sometimes a good thing and in, in as much as a dramaturg can be the first audience for a piece in development and so when I'm an audience member I sit down in a in a theater and it takes me a good three to five minutes just to hear what anybody is saying on the stage that's not true for everybody but that's absolutely mm-hmm. true for me it's like I've just settled in oh I my water did I shut my phone off you know is my <laughs> is my friend beside me you know twisting too much oh there's somebody I see across the way oh great look at the set you know that's it's it sort of takes me a moment as the lights come down and um so for me very often you know in a play um when we're talking about establishing scenes um you know i, I like to give the audience i i encourage it, you know if the play supports it if the, if the aesthetic of the play supports it to sort of just give the audience a little bit of breath or for the or for the writer just to know that they might not hear everything right off the bat mm-hmm. like if you're going to give really really important information maybe you have to say it again or maybe sure. you have to find a different way to say it um, so, you know, it doesn't mean that obstacle can't be, um, you know, established from the very first moment. Again, like those Greek dramatists, you know, you could open in the middle of a war and we understand certain conflict. But I do think that, um, you know, as those conflicts become more nuanced, I think you really are looking at a structural thing. And I think thinking about structure and plays um, is a really, really important thing. Um, so when do you introduce this conflict? How does this conflict build, you know, what if any subplots or side stories or subconflicts are there? Um, ultimately, where does this all reveal itself in the climax? Um, you know, the period of time after the climax is also a real structural thing. You know, if your climax is scene three of a 20 scene play, you know, what are the last 17 scenes doing then? You know, would be a question. What's really happening there? You know, that's an interesting place to put a climax. You know, so usually, you know, yeah, usually there are, you know, structural paradigms that work for well-made text-based plays. Right. And so where those conflicts are laid out and where those um, climaxes are, are really, are really um, something that you can see structurally. Right. 
dialogue, I think, is always such a challenge, too, for a writer. Mm-hmm. What, what do you feel makes dialogue work? And what do you think sometimes holds mm-hmm. dialogue back from, mm-hmm. from fulfilling a, the goal that it wants to, to achieve? So sort of two major things for me for dialogue. Um, you know, exposition is my big, big flag. And I think that that's a, that, that is some of the hardest thing about the hardest thing um, about telling your story, right, through the mouths of other characters. You don't want to hear, unless you do, and it's intentional, you don't want to hear the playwright's voice, right? You want those characters to be speaking for the benefit of the other characters that they are speaking to. Um, So, you know, that is a really tricky thing. You have to put them in, in situations in which they can say and reveal and speak to the things that ultimately, in a larger thematic way, y- you as a playwright want to say. Um, that is really one of the hardest things, I think, about crafting um, good plays. Um, again, to not be expositional. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people write plays with narrators. People write plays with... Um, you know, with uh, video clips that have surtitles. Like, you know, there's all ways to, you know, boost a story beyond just dialogue of characters. But if we're dealing with a quote-unquote well-made text-based play, then the next position is a huge flag for me. The other thing is authenticity of voice. And, um, you know, with with emerging writers or young writers or people just learning to write, you know, a very basic thing is, you know, how do the characters speak differently than each other? Um, so that's something that I often work with my young writers about. Um, you know, chances are, you know, an 80-year-old grandma and a 14-year-old kid are not going to speak the same way. Um, so that's that's a big part of it. So authenticity, you know, really knowing your characters and then thinking about the way that words and ideas you know, come from them. Mm-hmm. You know, those are really, really important things. Um, you know, and, and things are tricky when you, um, you know, start writing in either, you know, dialects or accents or from a certain era or of a certain time. You know, it's one thing when you're really familiar with the type of, um, you know, language or the type of way that a character might speak. But it's another thing when it's a little bit of a departure um, from your own personal experience. And those things need to be tread on really um, carefully mm-hmm. and, you know, with political and cultural acuity and understanding of, you know, different, you know, races or ages or genders or communities that you might be representing. Um, because voice is such a important... I mean, even when we talk about voice as a metaphor, obviously, it's such mm-hmm. an important, meaningful thing. When we're talking about voice as a tangible thing, you know, as a tangible aspect to your characters, it's it's a very very important thing. Um, so that's that's yeah, exposition and authenticity of voice are the two things for me for dialogue. We're kind of touching upon this, but what do you find are some of the mistakes that a young writer makes? Yeah, so I mean, you know, I think. I think um, early, you know, I, I, wow, it's funny. A whole list just came to me. I'm like, let me tell you the mistake <laughs> that all the young writers make. And of course, uh, you know, age is really not a factor because I've worked with emerging writers who are, you know, who took up writing for the first time in sure. their 50s. And I've worked, you know, I've read scripts by high school students that I am blown away by. But mm-hmm. for someone learning to write plays, um, 
one thing that I think, and I, again, it's so funny that this just came to me, but I think like they write really short scenes. <laughs> really? So they don't know, they don't know, and some plays really want really short scenes. Like maybe mm. you want a very episodic piece with hyperkinetic energy and, mm-hmm. you know, this, by all means, if that's your intent, like then it'll work. Then don't listen to a word I'm saying right now. But, you know, again, you know, for lack of a better example, if we're thinking about tax-made, well-made plays, um, it's hard to carry a scene, right? It's hard to like have something where you establish and that builds up and that has your, you know, your French exit at the end or, you know, you're like that it leads to the next thing. And so I think that for some emerging writers, um, they have like quippy pieces of dialogue, but they don't really understand, again, a structural shape or how it'll lead into the next piece. So I find that a lot of those scenes are, you know, a page or a page and a half long for an entire full-length play. And um, that's, I, 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 like, I didn't hear what they got to say, or I just met them, or that thing that I was saying before, where I just hadn't heard them yet. I just hadn't heard them yet. So so that's one just flag. And another thing that all the youngins are doing that's wrong, and, you know, because it's it's on podcast, people should know that I've yanked my pants up, like, really, really <laughs> high right now, and I have a scally look on my face with all my gray hair. Um, so another thing, um, so we just talked about short scenes. Um, I, too many characters. Um, and again... I can think of one million examples of 50 people on stage that work brilliantly. And so if that's the play you're doing, like ignore this. But, you know, sometimes it could be a short piece or a piece in development and there's literally 36 characters and I can't even keep track and it's very, very hard for me and I find it a huge struggle to know who to hook onto um, and to know where to go and... Um, you know, I just, why do you need 36 characters? You know, if it's a, if you need a band of henchmen coming in for the story that you're telling, just call them a band of henchmen. Maybe don't, you know, you don't have to give them all a name because it's really confusing for me. Um, you know, it's not a Russian novella, unless it is, you know, but it's not a Russian novella. So just give me the characters that are required to tell your story, um, in the most efficient way possible. (laughs) Um, And that said, you know, to contradict everything I'm saying, for the longest time because of um, economic factors and because of, you know, granting factors, um, you know, so much of Anglo-Canadian theatre, I think, was, you know, made insipid because we always said, oh, you can only have two or four people on stage because it's just too expensive to have more. And there's definitely been a response to that in recent years. And you see 40 people on stage, you see 60 people on stage, and it's brilliant and it's beautiful. And they're used in such a visual sense. And um, it's never remounted again. And it's never remounted again. It's, true. it's really unplayable. Um, well, there are there are exceptions to that, for sure. Um, so, so just be really clear. If you're going to have 60 people on stage, that it's because you're really intentional. Um, you know, that's really the biggest thing. Again, you know, if there was if there was something to take away, it's what I said before, which is what tells the best story. Um, but one way to know that is what is the story that you want to tell, right? Mm-hmm. So if it's intentional and you're doing it because you want to and it's something that is specific to what you need to express, um, then that's the right answer. You know, yeah. that's the right answer. And you might have, um, you know, a goal person in the you know a dramaturg or a good dramaturg or somebody doing good dramaturgy with you might be able to reflect that and say you know you wanted everyone to cry but everyone's laughing so if your intent was for everyone to cry 
I, these are the reasons why I think everyone's going to laugh. Mm-hmm. So, you know, do you want to adjust what you're doing? Or are you okay with that? Or, you know, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe everyone will cry, yeah. you know? Um, what, what are some examples of work that you think just nail it? If somebody wanted to read a number of stories and take away quality work, what would, what would some examples be? You know, I'm such a product of my upbringing. So um, one thing I would say is, if at all possible, don't don't read, you know, don't only read plays. Reading plays mm-hmm. is actually great. But don't only read plays. Go see theater. Theater is expensive to go see. You might live in a community where there isn't a ton of theater. It's not the type of theater that you like. Um, but there are often community nights. There are often options to volunteer, you know, get a job where you're ushering at your theater, you know, one day a week and you can see a lot of plays. So, so experiencing drama is a really, really important thing, in which case it doesn't matter who I tell you to go see because it's whatever play is up, right? And you might get a three to five week run. Um, But, but certainly go outside of your comfort zone. If you're, you know, if you come from an indie theater, um, place and you see and there's such good indie theater happening in Toronto like we're it's some of the most exciting stuff is happening um at independent theaters I think right now in this community um but if that's all you ever see like get out and get Matilda tickets and go see a huge Mervish production just because just because it might inform you just because you might say oh I hated that or you might say I had no idea what you could do with millions of dollars in production you know how can I do that with crayons and some tinsel tape for my production you know so so do what feels incongruent to what you normally see um is is one thing I would say um if you are um you know when you are reading plays, um, and again, I, I'm a product of my own um, generation. So I fell in love with Judith Thompson when I was studying theater in the 90s. And I still think her sense of dialogue and character is, is you know, just, you know, I'm, I'm thinking back to, you know, some of the classics, um, Crackwater, Crackwalker, White Bedding Dog, um, you know, some of those are ones that I was just completely raised on that I loved. Um, I was obviously hugely influenced by my time at um, Nightwood Theatre, where I was for, you know, off and on close to 15 years. Um, and the playwrights, the, you know, the, the playwrights that um, were developed um, there in terms of contemporary Canadian women playwrights, um, some brilliant, brilliant playwrights. Um, so looking at your own communities and who you have access to, I think are really, really great. And then of course, like I said before, you should know the greats. You should read your Shakespeare, you should read your Ibsen, you should read your, you know, think about what a survey theater courses taught you. And, you know, there's wonderful reading lists available online and, and go and, and mine those, um, you know, so we'd read wide, read far, but like go see plays because, you know, um, I saw Jess Dobkin's piece at the theater center just the other night and, you know, uh, people will argue whether it's theater or performance art. Maybe people won't argue. I think it's performance art, but, you know, we could talk about the subtle subtleties of what makes, makes it one or the other. Um, I don't really care. Um, for me, the most exciting thing about it was that it was such an experience. And I can't, I don't know what Jess was, what Jess Topkin was doing in terms of like scripting it. Um, there was obviously rehearsed dialogue and I do know that. Um, but like, I, it, that would never translate to, you know, anybody sitting somewhere reading it. Um, you have to go see that piece to really, really experience it. You know, um, uh, 
what she's able to do with the visual world and what she's able to do um, with a, you know, both audio and physical landscape, I mean, is just absolutely brilliant. And when I think about, you know, the good aspects of storytelling for her piece, um, you know, there is climax for sure. And it is storytelling for sure. And there is a beginning, a middle and an end. And there are all these things. But, you know, she plays with form. And again, you know, it's a performance art piece, but um, she plays with form in such a unique way. And she plays with character in such a unique way that, um, you know, I think, you know, should you apply the hero's journey, you're going to find a lot of fault with it. But just to go and experience it is brilliant. Um, so, yeah, those are, you know, anyway, that's, I forget what the question was. That was, <laughs> that was the most, I saw that piece two days ago. And anyway, people should check out Just Dobkin's performance art piece. Great. What kind of resources? If you, if if a writer wants to really up their game, mm-hmm. where would you direct them? What resources? So um, that's an important um that's an important thing because I think there are some writers who really, really respond, who are autodidacts. I think there's probably a larger amount of writers who are autodidacts um, than, you know, maybe other, you know, artistic pursuits or professions. Um, so I think a lot of people can learn a lot from just engaging with books. You know, hopefully if you're a writer, you're also a reader. I think actually that's just a good beginning. Um, after I just said, don't read plays. Um, of course, you should also read your plays. You should also read your um, novellas and your, you know, novels and your newspaper articles. You should read constantly. You should watch the world. You should also get your nose out of a book. You should observe. You should do all these things. Um, so in terms of resources, um, you know, there are um, many, many books. You know, McGee's Story is a classic, one that I that I hand out. I like I, I like giving writers um, actor guides as well. Like I think reading Uta Hagen or Approach to Acting um, can be really helpful for character development. So I think that's, you know, another sort of classic tome that I think people should be reading. Um, you know, writers on writing. You know, there's a lot of um, different sources out there. Um, and you should read the one that makes sense to you. Um, and for what you're doing, there's a ton of online courses. There's tons of tangible courses. If if that's the way as an adult learner, you best respond. Um, I, I find that also, um, you know, the way that we develop scripts, the way that I do it is um, often collaborative. So writers units or writers groups help people a lot too. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and that is, you know, if you're writing a play, there are likely people in your community who are also playwrights or writers and having a pizza night once a month on a Tuesday and taking turns where you write, where you read each other's work aloud and, you know, the writer can ask questions of the their friends in the room is a perfectly tangible, accessible way to, you know, do dramaturgy and to get a little further. Um, and I think that those things can be really, really helpful. Um, you know, I am not at all too precious to do things like, um, look up writer's prompts, you know, Google writer's prompts, mm-hmm. uh, dentist office. Um, you know, <laughs> that is like, you know, when I'm, when I'm teaching writing or when I'm engaging with writers on that, um, you know, on that level, I will often do things like that. Just like look up writing prompts because I can come up with them, but you know, the internet's come up with them better mm-hmm. and it might just be some rando website of somebody, um, somewhere writing them down, but I don't, I have no qualms about stealing some of those prompts for writing. Um, you know, and I think, you know, the biggest thing in terms of resource is just writer's hygiene. 
you know, I think that's the best thing that a writer can do to support their work. Um, so, you know, um, Cory Doctorow, who's a novelist amongst many other things, and who's super prolific as a as a novelist, writes um, every morning for an hour. That's what he told me years ago. That he writes every morning for an hour, and that's what he does. And he has like sort of a bunch of other day jobs, and he's super engaged in a million other things. But he writes for an hour every day. Um, I know other people who, um, you know, will take you know, Sundays aside and Sundays, their writing day and they write for four hours. Um, I know other people who, you know, have to get 200 words down on paper every sing, every other day or whatever it is. So, you know, again, it's about finding out what works best for you, what motivates you the best, but writing and keeping it going is really of the utmost importance, um, in terms of just staying connected to your work and being able to keep it going. And, you know, some people, um, don't have any problem with motivation or getting started, but most writers that I work with do. Absolutely, deadlines help, um, but but writer's hygiene is is something that'll keep things going as well. And sometimes that means just you know allowing yourself to write and toss, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes that means writing structurally if you can't actually engage in a scene. Um, so you know I might you know that's when again you know I might say just write a day in the life of a character that we don't actually even meet, um, but. A day, you know, go hour by hour, start at 6 a.m. or go year by year of this, you know, 40 year old character's life and write the most significant thing that happened to them. Like just, you know, just spending time in that world can be really, really important, you know, but it's not data entry. And so, you know, unless you're in a workshop, um, the idea that you're going to produce, produce, produce for like eight or 10 hours a day is ridiculous. You know, a lot of that has to be just scheming and sitting and brooding and reading Mm -hmm. about other things. You know, either research that's specific to your piece or things entirely different. I love that term, writer's hygiene. Mm. That's um, what we do is we'll put some links to uh, some of the resources that you mentioned oh, as great. well. And I was about to wrap it up, but then you mentioned writing exercises. And yeah. just I'd love to quickly find out what kind of writing exercises do you prescribe? Yeah. So, um, again, we have to start with what's the goal here? What have you got? What are you doing? So, um, you know, in, in over the summer, I was I was lucky enough to be artist in residence at, at uh, University of New Brunswick, and was working with people who um, some people who had never, had, certainly had never had plays produced before, um, and some people who were just taking a workshop with me, um, but they didn't have a script. So um, the late great Iris Turcott, and I just want to give a major shout out to um, you know one of our dramaturgical icons who sadly passed away recently, um, but she. Uh, in my young, young days, and she, she absolutely served as a mentor for me, um, would do these title prompts that I still use today. So um, one of those things, um, you know, and you, I, sort of, I can make up sort of the substance as I go, but I might say, you know, write down, you have 10 minutes to write down 10 titles. The first one, you know, has to have the word summer in it. The next one has to have another season in it. The next one has to have a boy's name. The next one, you know, has to be just one word. The next one, you know, and so you just start with title. So you can, that might initiate, that might bring ideas to the forefront or just gets you going or just gets pen to paper or whatever it is. So that's one that I do. Um, Another writing prompt for me, um, I mentioned the character stuff that I do, um, but another one might be to have two characters meet, um, you know, give them a scenario and write a scene that is not going to be in your play, like that for sure is not going to be in your play. So if you're writing a super surrealistic play about, um, you know, 
I don't know, fish in the sea and there's no human characters, then maybe, you know, a writing prompt could be, you know, can, what, what, what if a human comes here? What, you know, what do they observe? What happens if, if, you know, if, Fisher all of a sudden dives into the water. What could happen? So just you know to ex- to expand the world of the play a little bit, um, even if most of that's going to be on the cutting room floor, might you know create subtleties and nuances and enhance certain aspects of the actual piece. Um, so I think I think that can be really helpful um, in terms of those writing prompts. Um, one other thing that I feel like I should share, not necessarily in terms of writing prompts, but sort of one way that I approach um, dramaturgical analysis that I think can be really, really helpful um, is, you know, I was sort of giving that scenario before of, you know, a writer having friends around a kitchen table and eating pizza and, um, you know, we'll read the script and almost always I'll say something like, um, you know, what is this play about in one sentence? And everyone sort of has to go away and write what that play is about. Um, Can you ask a question for the character that you've, um, that you've read. Um, can you ask a question on behalf of the story um, itself, of the play itself? And, you know, those are just open-ended questions, um, but it gets people thinking and it gets dialogue going if that's, you yeah. know, if that's part of what that workshop experience is going to be. And um, Kelly Thornton um, and I would sort of taught me that methodology, and I think she had first learned it from Brian Quirt, and I think maybe Iris as well, though I'm not 100% sure. So, you know, I don't always use that anymore, but that is sort of one approach that I use when when looking at, when analyzing scripts when there's people in the room or when we're starting a workshop process. I'm dying to find out. Do you write? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't write plays. I write. Okay. Um, I don't write plays. Um, and you know, uh, I, I don't have, I don't feel defensive about that anymore. Um, I used to, I used to think that it was a huge, um, detriment to my role as a dramaturg that I wasn't a playwright. Um, but you know, I came from a directing background, um, and I also come from, you know, maybe a, a little more of you know, in my head background, there's a lot of dramaturgs who absolutely are writers who are, who are primarily writers. And there's a lot of dramaturgs who are actors and who come from other things. And so I think it's just about, you know, the approach that you could bring to the process. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that That's makes sense. Yeah. I, I have a good friend who is a, a director, a well-known director. And yeah. I asked her once, do you have the urge to get on stage? And she yeah. said, no, that's not my job. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's true. And I think we're, you know, so many artists are hyphenated nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a big part of what I've been doing lately is actually, um, it's so steeped in dramaturgy, although it's not called dramaturgy, but the idea of convening, you know, nonfiction narratives. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you know, it, it sort of creating panels and creating um, opportunities for an audience to meet with even personal narratives that are really, really strong. And I take the exact same approach dramaturgically to some of that work that I'm doing right now. And I'm finding that it's really informing the fictional work that yeah. I do with dramaturgy as well. So I think, you know, ultimately it's about messaging. It's you have something to say. Yeah. What is the best way to say it? What is the most effective way to say it? What is your intended way to say it? And who are you saying it to? Yeah. You know, and then that's all you got to figure. Once you got that, then your play is done. 
<laughs> That's right. Thank you so much for this. Um, you were such an inspiration working with you when Laura and I uh, worked on a couple shows, I think. And um, it's just great that you're able to come and share some of your ideas, some of your knowledge, some of your background. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. You know, obviously, I love talking. So this was very, very easy <laughs> ask for me. And um, you guys were great to work with. You guys were totally great to work with. And so for all the writers out there who are working with dramaturgs, just do whatever they tell you to do. (laughs) And everything will be fine. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Visit playmepodcast.com to learn more about our shows, leave a comment, or let us know what you think of our podcast. Play Me is produced by Laura Mullen and Chris Tolley. The associate producer is Pippa Johnstone. Play Me is funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. Special thanks to our partners, the Playwrights Guild of Canada, Factory Theatre, Tarragon Theatre, and the Musical Stage Company. Play Me is an Expect Theatre production. For more information, please visit playmepodcast.com. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.